Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... An estimated 100,000 people live with sickle cell disease, many experiencing crippling pain nearly every day. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us to discuss recent scientific advancements in the field of gene editing that might offer relief. Then we'll meet Georgia families living with the disease and talk to a local researcher who's dedicated his life to helping them find that relief. That's on this special edition of Closer Look. But first this, a federal judge rules Georgia's recently redrawn political maps can remain in place for the upcoming elections. In a ruling late Monday, Judge Steve Jones denied a request from plaintiffs to throw out the maps, which they argue made it harder for black voters to elect candidates who represent them. Now, Judge Jones cited it's too close to the state's May 24th primaries to change the maps. His decision references a recent ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court where justices blocked changes to to those political maps in Alabama, citing an upcoming primary election there. Qualifying for Georgia's primaries start next week. In other news, permits to carry a firearm could soon be optional in the state. The state Senate Monday passed several bills to loosen gun laws here. Sam Greenglass has those details. Republicans in the Georgia legislature have made so-called constitutional carry legislation a top priority this term. Currently, Georgians need to apply for a permit and undergo a background check to carry a handgun. Republican Senator Jason Anavitarte says that makes it harder for law-abiding Georgians to carry a weapon. They have turned on the national news and saw buildings on fire and stores being looted while reporters stood in the foreground about talking about mostly peaceful protests. You want to know who is buying a gun for the first time? It's a young mom who just heard on the radio in her car that there was another carjacking at her neighborhood gas station. This bill does not change who can legally carry a weapon in Georgia. Background checks would still be conducted when someone buys a gun at a retail store. But they aren't required for every gun purchase in Georgia, like gifts or private sales. Here's Democratic Senator Michelle Au. I think we can agree that this leaves a huge hole in our safety net further exacerbated by the fact that with the passage of SB 319, this background check at the point of sale would be the first and only way to weed out those who should not have legal access to firearms. With no mandatory permits and the background check that accompanies them, Au says some people who shouldn't have a gun could slip through the system. She introduced an amendment requiring background checks for more sales and transfers. It failed. Ultimately, the permitless carry bill passed the Senate on party lines and now heads to the House. The push has the governor's backing. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And an update now regarding the closure of the Forest Cove apartments in southeast Atlanta. Well, that closure will also affect a nearby school. Atlanta Public Schools announced it will shut down Thomasville Heights Elementary in the fall. Stephanie Stokes explains why. Residents at the Forest Cove Apartments have spent years living in terrible conditions. WABE documented the toll on tenants in a recent year-long investigation. During that year, in late December, a city judge abruptly moved to condemn the complex, calling it uninhabitable. With the apartments condemned, APS says there will be too few students at the elementary school next door. The school system calls the closure temporary. If Forest Cove is redeveloped, the 50-year-old school may reopen. In the meantime, city officials are working to find new homes for the families at Forest Cove. Stephanie Stokes, WABE News. 
And a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. And you can find all the information regarding Stephanie's documentary following the conditions at Forest Cove over the course of one year. That's online at WABE.org slash Forest Cove. And finally, here's a question I asked Georgia Labor Commissioner Mark Butler nearly a year ago. Let me ask you this real quickly. Got about 20 seconds. Will you seek re-election, Commissioner? You know, I always wait until the year of, just like I have every single time I run for election, ever since I was elected to the House back in 2003. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I don't know what my family situation is going to be then. Well, true to form, he is making a decision in the year of the election. Mark Butler will not seek another term as Georgia Labor Commissioner. According to published reports, Butler made the announcement yesterday to his department via memo. He cited family as a reason to not run again, saying, quote, My intention to retire from politics at the end of my term to concentrate on family and new opportunities. So as of right now, the sole Republican primary candidate for Labor Commissioner is current State Senator Bruce Thompson. As for the Democrats, there's State Senator Lester Jackson, State Representative William Bodie, and Nicole Horn. They're also candidates. The primary scheduled for May 24th of this year, and if needed, the primary runoff is scheduled for June 21st. This is Closer Look. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Sickle cell disease. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the condition affects about 100,000 Americans, many of them of African and Hispanic descent. It's a genetic condition that changes the shape of someone's red blood cells into C-shaped sickles. Now, that can cause blockage in blood vessels, slowing or even stopping normal blood flow. That can lead to what's known as a sickle cell crisis. Tissues and organs can be damaged because of a lack of oxygen, and people can experience severe pain. But recent scientific developments, specifically gene editing, offer some hope for people living with sickle cell disease. And you've heard a lot about this from our next guest. Rob Stein is a correspondent and senior editor on the science desk at NPR. He's covered sickle cell and treatments for it extensively. You know what that means? I mean, Rob joins me right now. Thanks for taking the time, Rob. I appreciate it. Hi, Rose. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You know, in my introduction, I set out a basic definition of sickle cell disease, but if you want to take a little bit further for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, it's, it's a genetic condition. And as you said, the CDC estimates it affects approximately 100,000 Americans, but it's also far more common in other parts of the world. There aren't great estimates and just how common it is around the world, but the WHO, the World Health Organization, estimates that perhaps 300,000 babies are born with sickle cell disease every year. So mm. it's quite common. It's, a, it's actually a huge problem around the world. And it is caused by a, a genetic mutation that causes uh, people to be born with uh, faulty versions of this protein called hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. And hemoglobin is, is what red blood cells need to carry oxygen throughout the body. So when they don't have normal hemoglobin, it causes a bunch of different problems. First of all, their blood cells, red blood cells, don't carry oxygen around the body as it's needed. And that's, you know, oxygen is needed to basically keep the, all the vital organs functioning, keep tissues healthy. So because the, they don't have enough oxygen, that in itself causes all kinds of complications. It can cause organ damage. It can cause uh, people to develop um, infections, people mm -hmm. with infections, lots of complications. And beyond that, as you also mentioned, these red blood cells get deformed, they get this sickle cell shape and they get clogged up, they kind of clump up inside vital uh, arteries and blood vessels. And that can cause, as you, as you mentioned, these horrible attacks of pain, these pain prices that are just uh, unbelievable. I, you know, I've, I've been following this woman, uh, Victoria Gray, for the last couple of years, who mm -hmm. was born with sickle cell disease. And before I met her, I, I, you know, I heard about sickle cell disease, but I never really realized just how awful they are. These pain attacks are they're not like the kind of pain that you and I are, are used to dealing with on a daily basis. These are pain that she describes them like lightning striking her in the chest and radiating, yeah. radiating out throughout her body. And she's often just devastated by them. And, and it's just an awful condition. And you know, and also there eventually this condition takes a toll on people's lives and it can actually end up shortening their lives. Mm -hmm. They don't have the normal lifespan because they, they can develop strokes or heart attacks or all kinds of other complications. So it's really a terrible, terrible condition. Rob, any information, any data reporting that can identify why this condition affects the populations that it does? What do we know? 
Yeah, you know, it, it, um, there are some theories about that. There is some, um, there is some evidence, for example, that people who are born with the sickle cell trait may be more resistant to malaria. Um, so that's one thought that the why this uh, condition, this trait is found more in parts of the world where malaria is more prevalent. Um, and then it, become, it, it became, you know, passed down through generations and, you know, through descendants. And, and that's, that's one possibility. You know, you mentioned Victoria Gray. She has sickle cell disease and lives in Mississippi. You've been following her journey throughout these last few years as she's participated in clinical trials of an experimental treatment for the disease. Mm -hmm. We're going to play a little bit of a clip for our listeners. It's from a story you did back in 2019. And Victoria is sharing with you what it's like living with the disease. Victoria's mom realized Victoria had sickle cell when she was just three months old. My grandma was giving me a bath, and um, I was crying. So they took me to the emergency room to get me checked out. And um, that's when they found out that I was having my first crisis. A pain crisis. It's one of the worst things about sickle cell. Excruciating, unpredictable attacks of pain. Sometimes it feels like lightning strikes in my chest and um, real sharp pains all over and it's it's the deep pain you know I can't touch it and make it better or do anything to make it better sometimes I would be just balled up and crying not able to do anything for myself that sounds just awful yes it, it is she often can't get the help she needs when one of those terrible pain attacks hit one of the things that makes sickle cell so hard is doctors refuse to give her enough pain medication. It's not uncommon for doctors to mistake sickle cell patients for people with a drug addiction. You already deal with the, the pain that you can't do nothing about, and then you have to deal with, you know, the hurt of them mis mistreating you at times, you know. And Rob, i got to tell you, I remember when you started this series, and I know a lot of our listeners are going to be reminded of this uh, fascinating reporting, first of all. But tell listeners how you met Victoria and how she came to be involved in this research. Yeah, Victoria, I just have to say that she she is an extraordinary woman. I mean, I've interviewed many people over my career, but I just have never met anyone quite like her. She's just such an inspiring person. I mean, when she's had to deal with all her life and the way she's handled it, and she's just one of the most expressive people I've, I've, I've ever met. And really, I mean, just helped me appreciate how terrible this disease is, and, and, and she's just been inspiring. Um, so she volunteered for this, uh, this clinical trial, this, this new uh, study that was just starting up to test this new kind of uh, genetic engineering gene editing called CRISPR, which uh, scientists have to think and hope that will eventually revolutionize medicine. And this was the, one of the first attempts to try to use CRISPR to try to treat a genetic condition in anyone. And she was the very first person in the world with sickle cell disease to undergo this experimental therapy. And she, um, so she found out about this trial and she volunteered for it. It was, it was based in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, she ended up being the first person to be treated with it. And it was a, it was a, you know, not an easy thing to go through. It was actually quite difficult. It was essentially she had to go through a, a bone marrow transplant. They had to take basically uh, cells out of her bone marrow, take them to the laboratory. They used this gene editing technique, CRISPR, which enables scientists to make more precise changes in DNA uh, much more easily than ever before. They basically use CRISPR to basically um, knock out a part of a gene that basically turned, the hope was that it would turn on the production of a form of hemoglobin mm -hmm. called fetal hemoglobin, which babies make when they're in the womb, but adults they stop making it as they mature. And they basically then uh, eliminated her normal bone marrow and red blood cells. And they infused these gene, billions of the genetically modified cells into her body in the hopes that they would basically take up residence there, start reproducing on their own, start reproducing this genetic change, and start producing this fetal hemoglobin inside her body to basically replace and make up for the, the defective hemoglobin she was born with. And nobody knew, this is the first time it had ever been tried, whether this would work or not. In fact, the, the first attempt idea was just to make sure it was safe, that it wouldn't do any damage. Mm -hmm. and it turned out that it looked like it worked. It has basically alleviated almost all of her symptoms for more than two years now. It's really quite extraordinary. 
and you checked back in with Victoria late in 2021, more than a year after getting her experimental treatment. I want our listeners now to listen to this. So how are you? I'm doing great. You are? Yes, I am. Oh, that's great. So, well, what's going on? Well, it's close to the holidays. So right now, just been Christmas shopping for the kids and family. And her health? Any signs of sickle cell, the genetic blood disorder that had plagued her all her life? Oh, my health's been doing great. You know, um, I haven't had any problems with sickle cell at all. I did get a cold about a week ago. <laughs> but other than that, everything is fine. Victoria's still so traumatized by a life of sickle cell that just getting a cold still terrifies her. A simple cold had been one of many things that could trigger a pain attack. Like having PTSD, you know, I was scared, like, okay, is this going to make me sick? Am I going to end up in the hospital from this? So you get the worry when things come up that, you know, usually triggers a sickle cell crisis. You know, the weather changed, but I did fine. So I'm, I'm good. More than good, actually. Way more. This is major for me and my family. You know, two years without me being in the hospital. <laughs> Wow. We just can't believe it, but we're so grateful. Wow. Rob, the just the joy in her voice is just yeah. amazing. I know. I know. It, it, is, it is amazing. It's just wonderful. I mean, and it really has just totally transformed her life. I mean, she just went from being, you know, suffering through these horrible crises, unable to take care of herself, unable to take care of her kids, unable to work, to basically being able to do everything that anybody else could do. In fact, um, I, just by coincidence, I talked to her again yesterday about that. just happened to check in with her and she's still doing great. She's actually gone back to work for the first time in the year. She's working full time. She's being able to spend time with her kids, go to her kids' football games and school events. And, and it's, just, it's just wonderful. Rob, what about other folks who went through the clinical trial or has there been other folks, I guess? Better question, too. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Now the the companies, there are two companies, biotech companies that are sponsoring this trial. And the last thing that they've reported, they've now treated a total of 45 volunteers in this trial. That's uh, with both sickle cell disease and a related condition known as beta thalassemia. And that's in, in this country and in Europe and other parts of Canada. And they've um, reported that it has helped at least 22 of those of those volunteers. And it's so it seems to be working not just for, for uh, Victoria, but for many other patients. And they hope to actually seek Food and Drug Administration approval for this experimental treatment sometime within the next maybe 12 to 24 months. Wow. The voice you hear is Rob Stein. He's a correspondent and senior editor on the science desk at NPR. He's been covering sickle cell and treatments for it extensively. And that's what we're talking about today, sickle cell disease. Rob, how big of a deal is this research? And if you can, Put it in the context of other research happening to people living with this disease and, and what it's done so far, to just not only for the folks, but to this, the scientific world as well. Yeah, no, this is this is a, a very big deal. And, you know, um, this is uh, there are have there have been some treatments available for sickle cell disease, but nothing really that worked all that well. At, or, and there you know, some people could get bone marrow transplants, but they had to find a, a match. So for a lot of patients, there's really nothing they could do, nothing they could that could help them. And um, this is just one of, there are several other similar related uh, experimental treatments that are in development right now, other, you know, using traditional gene therapy, using CRISPR in other ways, or at least three or four similar related that are all in clinical trials right now. So, and this is a disease that had long been kind of neglected by medical science, really, uh, hadn't gotten attention and uh, that a lot of other conditions had received. So it's it's really been extraordinary to see what's happened over the last couple of years, how this disease is finally getting attention and finally starting to, you know, reap the benefits from some of the scientific advancements that have occurred over the last few years. And in fact, so much of it has happened that the National Institutes of Health has now launched a special program to try to make sure that when these uh, treatments become uh, reach fruition that the devil's actually make them available to people who really need them. And Rob, do we know if the if this gene editing technology is used for any other condition or disease? Oh yes. Oh yes. Um, there there have been clinical trials now started for, for many other conditions. They're trying to use uh, CRISPR to treat uh, several forms of cancer. 
Uh, they've actually start, started the first trial where they've used CRISPR to try to edit DNA when it's still inside the body. I mean, in this you know, situation, they took the cells out, edited mm -hmm. the cells outside the body, then put it back in. There's a trial going on right now where they actually infuse the CRISPR directly into people's people born with a genetic condition that made them blind and try to restore some of their vision. Um, there are uh, many other conditions. There's talk about trying to use it to treat uh, uh, diabetes, heart disease, maybe even down to Alzheimer's, uh, other neurological conditions. So this is just the beginning. I want to shift for a moment and, and talk more about you, because as a fellow journalist and you're a storyteller too, and you've covered a lot, um, what this has done to you personally, covering this woman's journey? Yeah, I have to say, as I had said earlier, I, you know, meeting Victoria has just been an amazing experience for me. And I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky that I've been, first of all, that I was able to, that she agreed to share her story with me and, and, and many personal details about her life. And, and it, it made me appreciate, uh, the, you know, just what a difficult condition this is and how, what an amazing people are that have this condition and what they've had to deal with and and to be able to, to stay with it and stick with it and follow her for two years i've never actually been able to do that ever before in my career and and to be able to watch this evolve from something that was sort of a pie in the sky you know possibility to some a real you know treatment that is actually changing and transforming the lives of patients it's just been, it's been extraordinary especially you know these days when I think we can all use a little bit of good news. Absolutely. I actually have a question from a listener who wants to know, is Victoria still in the clinical trial? Is it over and they're just now monitoring her? Or is she still involved in some type of, of you know, with the trial here? Yeah, that's a very good question. As it turns out, um, she just passed the two-year mark. So she officially, she's no longer in the original trial that she volunteered for. That is done. But she's now in a follow-up trial. All the patients that are being treated with CRISPR for any condition, and there's a bunch of them out there. The deal is basically that they're going to follow all these people for 15 years because it's so new. They want to make sure that it is safe. So far, it looks like it's safe, but it's so new, you know, you never know. And also to make sure that it keeps working. That's the big question. I mean, it seems to be working so far, but will it last? The hope is it's a one and done thing. They'll never need to be treated again, but we don't know. We just have to see what happens. And just so we're clear, we're talking about a treatment, not a cure. But this is a treatment. Yes, technically that's what you'd have to call it because um, it doesn't actually correct the genetic defect that people like Victoria were born with. So basically, it's compensating for the effects of the genetic defect. But you know, it's what people refer to as kind of a functional cure. She basically is no longer suffering from any of the complications that had plagued her all her life. She still has some residual damage to her heart that she suffered because of the, having the condition for so long and they, nothing they can do about that. But all those terrible pain prices, all the need for blood transfusions, all the complications that she suffered, for now, they're gone. Wow. What are you hearing in, in our next segment? We're going to talk to a researcher, but are you hearing anything else new in terms of dealing with sickle cell disease for, for families, for individuals, anything new from the research labs that we can expect to, to learn about? Yeah, there, 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 there are these other trials that have been going on now that are also showing promise. There's one based at a Boston Children's Hospital that seems to be going pretty well. There's, a, there's another one um, that is uh, uh, being sponsored by a company called Bluebird Bio. Um, and then there's a, a yet another one just starting up now at Stanford University where they're actually trying to actually correct the original genetic defect, not compensate it by turning on fetal hemoglobin, but actually fix the genetic defects so that people will start producing their own normal hemoglobin. And, and so that's uh, using CRISPR as well. So, you know, and as I also mentioned, the, the NIH is uh, seeing all this progress. And so this, these are expensive treatments that are difficult to administer. So they realize that if we're going to make this a practical treatment for, for people, we have to figure out a way not to, just to do it, but do it in a way that's accessible and affordable. Oh, I have another question from listener says, are, do they still need participants in the clinical trials? Can you ask your guests? What do you know? Um, yes, absolutely. There, there are, uh, there are, these trials are, are actively recruiting right now. So if people are interested in them, they can, there's actually the easiest thing to do is go to something called the clinicaltrials.gov is a white website maintained by the federal government. If you just uh, type in there, uh, sickle cell disease, um, you'll see a bunch of trials pop up there. They'll tell you who's sponsoring them and, and how to contact them. And of course, we always encourage folks to make sure they do their own research and consult with their 
primary care physician. Rob is a lot of things, but he's not a doctor. He's a great journalist. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. That's right. Play one on the radio, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Stein, a correspondent and senior editor on the science desk at NPR. Rob, it's a pleasure to meet you. Love your work. Thank you so much for telling this story. We're going to continue. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's It's been a real pleasure. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We'll continue today's special programming with a focus on sickle cell disease. And now we turn to the people and families living with it every day. India Hardy lives in Athens, Georgia. She was diagnosed with sickle cell disease as a toddler. Ife Oleu is a mother of two, and both kids have the disease. The family lives in Cumming, Georgia. Ife's husband also living with sickle cell. And I'm also joined by Dr. Clark Brown. He's a pediatric hematologist and director of sickle cell clinical research research, excuse me, at the Aflac Cancer and Blood Disorder Center at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. That's a lot to say, but thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. India, I want to start with you. Take our listeners through what it's like on a what we would call a a good day. I want to start with a good day living with sickle cell disease. What's a good day for you? Well, a good day for me is basically I still have pain every day, but a good day, I would say I wake up. I actually, I do have a a business. I'm a makeup artist. So I would get my daughter ready for school. She would go to school. I would go to work. Um, I basically live a normal life other than the bad days, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I have sometimes where I feel groggy or weak some days, you know, but basically I live a normal life. Mm-hmm. And as you were growing up, what did your parents tell you about sickle cell disease? Well, we didn't know much about sickle cell growing up, and I didn't see others like me, really, in school. I was the only one, well, I felt like I was the only one in my class that, you know, I was always in the nurse's office, or I was always having to lie down or take a, a extra nap because I wasn't feeling well. So I didn't see, it wasn't common and it wasn't talked about for me growing up. And I didn't know much about it. Hmm. Ife, when you listen to India and you have two kids and your husband, what she's talked about, that's not lost on you, is it? No, not at all. Um, I think I think now we have a, we. My, my kids are a little more educated. You know, we, we let them know very early that they did have this disease and we kind of let them know. They don't really understand, I think. I think it's just, you know, we tell them, hey, this is what it is. And this, you know, this is probably why your arm hurts here and there, your leg hurts, that kind of thing. Um, but I think now because education has risen a little bit, I think, kids these days are a little more uh, prepared. My son knows, hey, I need my water bottle on my desk. He can tell his teachers that, you know, that kind of thing. Versus before where like India mentioned, she probably wasn't armed with that kind of knowledge. And your husband as well lives with the disease. Mm-hmm. What's yes, a, he does. What's a good day for him? 
Luckily, luckily enough, or should I say that we're blessed, my husband hasn't had many issues in adulthood. Majority of his issues were um, prevalent when he was younger. Um, so in the last, I would say, 25 years, maybe for him, he hasn't had a crisis or any kind of pain. Um, whereas growing up, he dealt a lot with that. So a lot like India's story where, you know, frequent naps, frequent trips to um, the school, um, nurse hospitals, that kind of thing. Um, but now he's pretty much, um, I won't say asymptomatic. I'm sure he's, there's still things there, but he doesn't struggle as much as he used to. I want to bring in Dr. Clark Brown. Dr. Brown, you hear these stories. Obviously, you've heard these stories before. Um, just how common are they for folks? Yeah, these are very familiar stories. But first, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be part of this important discussion. Um, we have, I, my practice is based at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I, with two other sickle cell physicians, provide care for over 2,000 children and young adults in Metro Atlanta. Hmm. And the stories um, that you're hearing are very common. There's often, even though there's several patients in Atlanta, this is a big area. And often some kids grow up not knowing that there's other people with sickle cell disease. Um, fortunately, we're at a comprehensive center here where we can do additional education and even have camps for patients with sickle cell disease so they get to know each one another. And Dr. Brown, what are the common instances under which parents bring their kids to you all, maybe not knowing what what's causing their discomfort or pain but then you all obviously are able to to diagnose that take our listeners through that process and when parents come to you all we're fortunate in the united states to have a process called the newborn screening and you can actually make the diagnosis of sickle cell disease in the first couple of weeks of life and then that then prompts a referral to the uh, comprehensive centers um, that take care of patients with sickle cell disease. Dr. Brown, would you say then access to these resources uh, for, for families has gotten obviously better over the years? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. We have seen um, more physicians being aware of the treatment for sickle cell disease, including outside hospitals and other um, uh, private um, pediatricians and adult medicine. I want to ask you, we here in the urban area, obviously in Atlanta, which is an urban area, have, having Children's Health Care healthcare of Atlanta is so great for so many families. But do you know in terms of when we get outside of the 13 counties here, that we say metro Atlanta, what about in the rural parts of the state? What about access for those folks? It's still a significant problem and that we're trying to address there are less providers that are aware of sickle cell disease in those areas. It is unfortunate that the main symptom of sickle cell disease is pain. And pain is one of the things that is sometimes very difficult to treat unless you really have experience with treating sickle cell. And we should note the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services reveal that Georgia has one of the highest rates of folks living with sickle cell disease in the U.S. that's based on a tally of Medicaid beneficiaries. Any any reason why you think that is, Dr. Brown? Well, we know that from um, the history that we have that a lot of the African-American population settled here in the South. Sickle cell disease is one of the most common inherited diseases that predominantly occurs in people of color. Hmm. India and Ife, I want to talk about your experience in terms of getting the access to the care that you need. Ife, I'll start with you. How would you assess resources, access to care for your entire family? Well, we're lucky enough to, um, we have coverage through my husband's uh, employment. So we're not um, on government assistance and things like that, government insurance. Um, and I think, like Dr. Brown said, we, we were, we did know from birth because of the newborn screening. So, you know, lucky for us, we weren't, um, it wasn't a late diagnosis or anything of the sort. In terms of resources, I, you know, I can really thank CHOA as an organization because from, from birth, you know, they've really set us up with quite a few 
uh, things here and there, you know, that 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 could help us support groups, social workers if we need them, and all those types of things, you know, to to assist the children in just living with living with this disease. Mm. India, what about you? What's that journey been like for you in terms of access to the care that you need? Well, for me, I would say I haven't been as fortunate as Ife and her family because I do live in a small town. So there aren't many, well, there aren't any sickle cell clinics here where I live in Athens, Georgia. And, um, when I was younger, I traveled a lot to Atlanta to the sickle cell clinics or the specialists there. And the hospitals there are very understanding when it comes to treating sickle cell pain. But here in my small town, it's, it's like you don't have the resources or the doctors that are educated on treating this disease here. And, we go through a lot of difficult times here. So, India, what do you do? Do you travel back up here to Atlanta? Yes, I I travel to Atlanta, but unfortunately, I, I don't have a vehicle at this time. So I have to, I'm stuck going to the, um, we only have two hospitals here. So I do go to the emergency room here in Athens, but it's kind of hard getting the care that you need dealing with doctors that's not really, that I don't feel is educated enough on this disease. Dr. Brown, when you hear the two stark differences in, in the resources and access to care for Ife in India, and they're just sep- they're not separated by like by thousands of miles here, you know, what does it say to you? Well, that there is a huge unmet need um, especially in rural America, to bring better care to patients with sickle cell disease. And there are some grassroots efforts now to expand the education to other hospitals, other physicians in the community, but it has been slow. You say it has been slow. Why do you think that is? I mean, I know you, you work in this space. Is it because... Well, they don't think it because it's a disease that only affects 100,000 people a year? I mean, what? Right. I think, you know, familiarity is very important when physicians are treating disease. And if they don't come across patients that are actually having the disease, they're somewhat lost about what to do. And they often then will refer them up to us. Um, and we're happy to take these patients, but it, it creates additional burden for the patient to have to live where they have support system and come to Atlanta. So, I mean, we are often doing kind of consults for patients that live in South Georgia um, and Macon and Columbus to come to us to see. Um, and But there are some resources that we have that aren't in the community. One of the things that uh, is an important test for kids with sickle cell disease is what we call the sickle cell stroke screen. Mm-hmm. The sickle cell stroke screen is a kind of ultrasound technique that is kind of specialized. Most ultrasonographers can do the test, but there's not people to read that test. So there has been efforts to kind of coordinate so that these tests can be done locally, but then read centrally. And then initiative like that is going on in South Carolina. And I hope that we can bring that to Georgia. India and Ife, we talked at the start of this program with Rob Stein. He's a health reporter for NPR, and he's covered some of the research into new treatments for sickle cell disease, some of which we have, which have shown promise. Uh, Ife, have you all participated in any clinical trials for sickle cell? Is that something that you're considering if you haven't for your children, especially? Yes. Yeah, we actually have. um, Just recently, um, my son was approved to, to uh, participate in a, a trial for a new drug. For the longest time, the only drug that was available to uh, sickle cell patients is, is a, drug, a drug called hydria or hydroxyurea. Um, and, and I heard Mr. Stein talking about um, the therapies that increase uh, fetal hemoglobin and um, 
you know, work on retic counts and all that stuff. And, and that was, that's hydroxyurea. But now, and Dr. Um, Dr. Brown can correct me if I'm wrong. Now we have um, therapy, a therapy called uh, Voxelator um, by Oxbrita. And um, my son was in that trial um, and it works to increase hemoglobin. Um, and, you know, we've seen a great promise with the drug. My son is still on it and my daughter actually just started. And so we've seen uh, just a drastic increase in their health just as a result, you know, even just energy levels. India talked a little bit about the days, even on good days, feeling weak and needing extra naps. And that has, we've seen that in our house. Um, and now with this new therapy that has gone away, my son is literally the Energizer Bunny. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've definitely uh, seen promise in that new drug. So we're really grateful for it. India. There, there are clinical trials here. Have you thought about, have you participated, or do you want to? Um, yes, I'm very open to participating, but I haven't, unfortunately, I haven't been, um, I haven't known about any clinical trials here. Well, Dr. Brown, I'm sure, can, can help you with that, and we're going to make sure that uh, Dr. Brown, he'll probably give you all the information that you need. Dr. Brown, how important is it that we get more people, people of color, especially black Americans, into participating in these clinical trials? It's very important, actually. And so uh, we have come into a, a new age of treatment um, for sickle cell disease. As if they mentioned, this new drug, Oxbrida, has been recently developed. And now there's several other biotech co companies that have sickle cell disease on their radar. So there's some promising agents that are in early clinical trials and some late phase trials to see how well they will benefit patients with sickle cell disease. But we can't do those trials if we don't have patients who want to be the volunteers, to be the warriors, to go ahead and be kind of the first person to try the drug. Well, we spoke to Rob Stein earlier, and of course, he had been following Victoria. And of course, you're familiar with the gene editing technology. Then you have a young woman like India here in Georgia who says, look, I am willing to participate. I want to be a part of this. And if India hasn't heard Victoria's story, we definitely want you to take a listen to it. We'll see the links. But that is so, so important, Dr. Brown. How do we reach the Indias and everyone else? Right. You know, some of these... Um, protocols that are open are somewhat limited now because the gene therapy um, are, you know, early days mm -hmm. and there's from some potential side effects that we may not know about yet. However, again, like Dr. Uh, Rob Stein mentioned, is there more companies that are developing their version of gene therapy so that by having more protocols open, that means we can enroll more patients and treat them with this new potentially curative, curative disease, um, treatment. Ife, I want to go back to your kids for a moment. You said your son is like the Energizer Bunny here. Uh, what have you noticed about his yeah. change and his personality and, and what he says about, you know, living with sickle cell and, and basically just how he's doing? How old is he, 10? He's 10, yes. And 10-year-olds need their yes. energy. So I <laughs> They absolutely do. They absolutely do. I mean, before, um, you know, I would say that before the, the new therapy, he was doing okay. You know, the occasional arm pain, leg pain, that kind of thing, but never, he's only, he's been hospitalized just once. Um, but it was just, like I said, the everyday sluggishness, the, the need for an extra nap, whereas his peers would just be going and going and going. And that frustrated him quite a bit. Um, but now, like I said, you know, he's, it's, it's a stark change. His hemoglobin has increased and he's again, just like the Energizer Bunny, just going, going, going. I think for my son, it, it, it or both of my children really educating them young um, to let them know, hey, there are things you can do to improve, you know, um, um, what the disease looks like for you. For example, we have water contests, you know, where I fill up their uh, 32 ounce water bottle at the beginning of the morning and I say, hey, if you come back with this thing, you know, empty or almost empty, I'll give you a prize, that kind of thing. And don't pour it out. You know, I want it inside you, not on the ground, that kind of thing. You know, so we do little things like that to 
encourage them to take their health in their own hands, even though they're young, you know, just letting them know, hey, there are things you can do to help yourself. So the new therapy definitely has changed my son's life for sure. My daughter always had higher hemoglobin, but um, for my son, it's very, it's very apparent. And how old is your daughter? How far away is she being uh, eligible to participate in one of these trials? She actually just started about uh, a week now. Mm -hmm. We just got her her medication. So she just started. So we haven't seen, uh, I guess she hasn't been back to the doctors for us to look at her levels. Um, She's about a week in. Uh, But for my son, it's been about three years that he's been on it. So the, the, the evidence is clear that it has truly helped him. Indy, I want to bring you back into the conversation because I want to talk about a support system for you and what's that been like throughout your life? Um, what has it been been like? Um, well, my support system has basically been my mother. Um, I really don't, I wouldn't say as far as therapists or professionals, I wouldn't say I have much of a support system there, but I have met a few patients here locally in my town that I've tried to help be there for and start a support system with. Um, she's a little younger than me, but I, you know, we speak of the phone. We try and be there for each other, but I would like to expand that and see a bigger um, support system here in a, in the smaller town for sickle cell because we need that support system because we go through a lot of stress and sometimes it helps for us to just speak with one another and see each other's situations. And, you know, always having someone to talk to is a good thing. So, um, but my support system with my mother is great, but that's something that I want to change here. And, Athens is to get a support system going for sickle cell patients. Mm. And do any other family members to your knowledge uh, or immediate family members have sickle cell as well? Do you know? Yes. My brother, my older brother, he has sickle cell as well. Um, And my aunt, my dad's sister, she passed years ago, but she had sickle cell as well. Dr. Brown, what do you know about this disease and, and it being hereditary and affecting families, more than one family member? Yeah. So we know that patients that have sickle cell trait are resistant to malaria infections. And mm-hmm. so in the African-American population or in the populations that were at risk for malaria, the sickle cell um, trait was kind of enhanced. Unfortunately, when you have parents that both have the trait, there's a 25% chance that the child will get both traits, one from the mother, one from the father, and actually have the sickle cell disease. Fortunately, the sickle cell trait doesn't have really much significant health complications, but obviously sickle cell disease does. Hmm. Ife, what what about your family? Because your, your two kids, your husband, but you, you yes. don't live with the disease. Yeah, no, I do not. I do not. I do have the trait. However, my father has the trait, and I think I am one of five girls. And of the five of us, only one does not have the trait. So, which speaks to what the, Dr. Brown was saying, um, where the trait um, is is pretty significant um, in some families, which increases the likelihood of of the disease. On my husband's side, he lives with the disease. And his father, his grandfather, rather, also lived with the disease. Um, his both of his parents had the trait, um, so which you know led to him having uh, the disease. So, so you, um, yeah. Oh, so I just wanted for clarify for our listeners, Ife and Dr. Brown, so you can have the trait, but not necessarily be living with the 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 conditions, the symptoms of the disease. Is that correct? Absolutely, that's correct. As we wrap up, and Ife, I'll start with you. Uh, because you're you're optimistic, obviously. Uh, what do you hope for yeah. the future for for your kids and obviously your husband, but particularly for your kids as well, and for folks living with this disease? Um, I think my my greatest hope is that they're able to live normal, long, healthy lives. I think that's any parent. 
um, desire for their children of, of getting the word out and educating people and increasing newborn screenings and things of that sort. Um, as we do a better job, I think my hope is just that, you know, it, it, it increases um, joy, pain-free lives, joyful, pain-free lives for my children, for, for other children living with this disease, and even for some of the adults, people like India and my husband who, who deal with it on a daily basis. My hope is just that as research increases, that everyone's livelihood also increases as a result. India, what about you? Well, my hope for the future is that we get more education for doctors here in smaller towns. So patients with sickle cell who don't have the means to travel to larger cities where they have special specialists and doctors who know how to treat us, um, just basically better resources and better education for the doctors, the nurses, of learning how to treat sickle cell patients, mm. um, support systems, maybe support groups here in a smaller town like Athens. And I just hope that, you know, we all just continue to support one another and educate ourselves on how to live better quality quality of lives absolutely dr brown i'll give you the last word right i think all these initiatives are very important and there is good promise in gene therapy but it is going to take a while for it to be a therapy that is offered to um, all patients with sickle cell disease in the meantime though some of these drugs are going to get us to kind of that uh, pharmacological cure where we can actually improve the quality of life and reduce the complications. Mm. Dr. Clark Brown, Director of Sickle Cell Clinical Research at the Aflac Cancer and Blood Disorders Center at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. We also spoke with Ife Olehu, a mother of two, both kids have the disease. And also from Athens, Georgia, India Hardy, diagnosed with sickle cell disease as a toddler. Best of luck to all of you. India, we're going to help you get started with that support group. We're going to make sure you get that going. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this special edition of Closer Look, which was spearheaded by our senior producer, Sam Whitehead. Our other producers are Janine Etter. LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razel, our engineers, Kevin Rinker. Reminders to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, which I'll love to do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you know, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.